This episode of the Fabulous Learning Nerds is sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTIs, counselor, and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hey there, this is Scott. This is Dan. And this is Abby. And we just want to take a few minutes as we go into these holidays to thank all the guests who've sat down with us this year. You've really inspired us. I think you've really inspired a lot of our audience. And we just want to say thank you. And from all the fabulous nerds, we wish you and yours happy holidays. Happy holidays from the nerds. They are the fabulous learning nerds. Because if you're tired of the old ways of getting it done, you've got the fabulous learning nerds. Scott, Dan, and Abby are making it fun. The best ideas that you've ever heard. So everybody spread the word. Fabulous learning nerds, fabulous learning nerds, oh yeah! Hey everybody, welcome to another fantastic episode of your Fabulous Learning Nerds. I'm your host, Scott Chudy, and with us during this fantastic holiday season, you love him, Dan Coonrod. Ho, ho, ho! He's such a good little boy. Dan! That is... Uh, as a matter of fact, true. I am a good boy. You Just are. Just going to say it. <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, since you've been good, um, what uh, what would you like for the holidays this year, sir? Uh, you know what? Honest to goodness, I'm pretty good. I've pretty much already gotten everything I wanted, uh, have everything that I need. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. I just got back from the vet. We have a new doggo. He, uh, he adopted us. He showed up and hung around the house for a few days. And then I was like, well, I guess we better get him checked out and see who's missing a dog. So after almost a month of trying to find uh, his previous owners and checking for microchips and stuff, uh, we have a dog, got back from the vet this morning, and they're like, he's really healthy. And I'm like, wow, that is definitely not what I expected uh, for a dog who was dug up uh, part of my drainage field and was drinking nasty water. So yay, good news. (laughs) How, How many dogs is this? Just your only dog? This is two now. Two? Both are strays. We live right. out uh, rural in South Carolina. And, uh, oh, oh, I, I hear them. There they are. That was well right timed. There. Was well timed. No, no. Right. That, oh, like, that big more one, than two. The big one sounds like it could be. Right. Both yeah. dogs. Oh. Yeah. Are you sure be that's quiet. not your house? <laughs> oh, we're not going to get into that. No, sir. No, sir. That's great. That's pretty awesome. And how That's are the dogs good. doing? Other than they're both healthy, that how else are they doing? Oh, they're doing great. Uh, we have we've had a dog, uh, just a great dog, and for about mm-hmm. an hour she was like, "Oh, I don't know if I like this new dog." And then she was just like, "Oh, obviously he's meant to be my new best friend, and we're gonna hang out and play all the time." As a right. matter of fact, in order to make sure that this podcast uh, isn't the rat-a-tat-tat of claws on hardwood floors and barking. 
uh, they are separated for the next hour. Mm. Uh, otherwise, they would be playing still. Right. Well, I was kind of hoping that they were. Fear to <laughs> I mean, they might be. I don't know. They might be. I don't know. I gotcha. They could All be, right. possibly. Also, um, uh, we have someone who's equally as good this holiday season and all year round. You, you love her. Abby Dawson, everyone. Abby! Hey, Scott. How you doing? Doing good. That's How are awesome. you? Great. So are, are you uh, in your household all, all ready? No, you, you've got young kids in the house, right? We have um, one. He just turned five this week. So he is a... Uh, ideas and opinions and requests and he's a lot of fun uh-huh. <laughs> now when i was five um and i believed in does he believe in santa of course okay well i mean some don't so i get that so is he bouncing <laughs> off the walls excited every day of the week okay but okay. i mean not just about santa like he just lives in this general state of you know Five-year-olds are just live in emotion. Mm-hmm. They're happy. They're mm-hmm. mad. They're <laughs> there's no like downtime. Really, I can't imagine. No. I can't. I can't remember <laughs> when that was. Well, that's fantastic. I, I, I. You know, honestly, that's. Um, do you guys know who um, Robert Fogum is? <gasps> I've heard oh, the name. Robert Fogum wrote the book um, "Everything I Need to Know." I learned in kindergarten. He's a, an American um, columnist, uh, poet. Um, one of my favorite authors, he, he, you should pick up his book, but he had an um, article that he wrote. Um, and basically, uh, he said, what I, what I really want for Christmas, I can't get. I really just want to be, I, re- I really just want my childhood back. Um, and it's a beautiful piece. Maybe I'll post it. I'll probably post it in the show notes. It's an absolute beautiful piece about um, kids and how great it is to be a kid, and, you know, uh, they're just susceptible to joy is what, what he said. Like, you know, that's one thing that kids at this time of the year have, like, they're just totally susceptible to joy. Like, bring it, bring me more joy. And, and we're all like cynics, like somebody shoot this person down the street. Right. I've just, I've had enough of, of all the, all the things. So at any rate, Robert, Robert Fogum, go check that out. At any rate. I like that phrase a lot. Susceptible to joy. Sus- that's awesome. Susceptible to joy. Yeah, that's what we should all hope to be. That um, like our. Yeah, uh, I like that a lot. Like our fantastic guest, folks. We have a fantastic guest who I know for a fact is uh, susceptible to joy, and we're going to learn all about him and uh, his journey and the fantastic stuff he's going to bring to us this week. In a little segment that we call "What's Your Deal." Hey man, what's your deal? Azel. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. What's your deal, my friend? Um, so I, I'm a college professor. I teach um, sociology, the study of groups and society at um, a local college here in Nashville, Tennessee State University. I previously, my, my previously worked um, as a lead corporate trainer and instructional designer for a workforce development job readiness organization in Washington, D.C., in Maryland. So that's my deal. Uh, you know, a lot of people are making that transition from education 
into instructional design. Sounds like you did the opposite. Um, what led you to make that decision? That's really interesting. Well, no, I, I was teaching for 15 years. I moved to D.C. to be closer to um, elderly family members. And there was an opportunity to um, work with veterans and other populations. And it just kind of stumbled into that area. And when the pandemic hit, we were told all of the in-person training that you've been doing, you need to figure out how to put it online tomorrow. Um, and so I, we just found ourselves building online content at, a, at an almost ungodly rate. And we were successful in doing that. And when I moved back to Nashville, my plan was just to take a few months just to catch my breath. And my former um, chair of the department said, we need you to start teaching right now. So I just fell right back into teaching because there was a need. But I'm probably going to be focusing on the instructional design side going forward. Wow, that that's an amazing journey. Um, a little little PTSD I'm feeling for myself in that same uh, area. I'm like, oh my gosh, now I got to, I got to figure this out and where's the handbook. And um, I'm super excited that you guys not only figured it out, but we're successful and um, hopefully some of those stories show up. Um, but you got some really awesome things to chat about. So folks, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our topic of the week. All right, today we're going to be talking about critical thinking. Now it's different than formal education. And I, for one, think this is incredibly timely. Um, critical thinking is not something that um, I find to be quite common. And so I'm really excited and interesting to get your thoughts on, on uh, critical thinking, sir. I could have phrased it um, informal versus formal. But that would have not captured the concern that I have. Um, I, I, was, I was thinking about a phrase where um, being in a university again for almost two decades, um, students are often told to get your education as if it is a product that you purchase instead of telling them to become educated, which is um, um, a way of being, right? A way of, 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 of seeing the world and an ongoing process. And when I think about a person who is a critical thinker, they're always in a state of being educated, um, a verb, versus a person who gets a formal education, they've purchased an education, which can be put on a shelf and gathered dust. And so I've been thinking about those distinctions a lot. And, and the more I observe, I have, I have kids who are in college, I'm teaching obviously college age kids, the more I observe how um, young people approach education, and also how um, older adults, those with children, my previous clients, approached education. 
I started thinking more about the difference between those who see learning as their responsibility versus those who see learning as something that is either forced on them or they're made to do it. And so again, that's something that I'm wrestling with just to understand it better and equally important, how do I, as an instructor, as a teacher, encourage people to become educated, whether it's with training or in the classroom versus getting an education? That's a little wordy, but that's what I'm wrestling with. I couldn't agree with you more. Like, I feel like, you know, oh my goodness, there's so many different um, articles online as to our access to information and how that has grown exponentially, right? Um, and so with all this access to, to education that I can get on, um, in, my, in my hand, anytime I want it, anytime I need it, um, that value of being educated and or a critical thinker um, has become a little more challenging. That's just my, my experience, right? It's just disposable. That's, that's, what you were, that's what you're touching on. It has become disposable. It has become something that you can acquire with minimal effort. There's no investment. And because of that, um, it's not valued in the way that um, one should value it. So after when I when I was after teaching, I I I I enrolled in a building construction class. I was curious about just the building process, how to build, how to fix lights, how to how to um, you know. Um, carpentry, just a full range. And I learned in that class, here I was, you know, I, I was I was a college professor and I met um, classmates who I considered to embody what I'm trying to find in my students. Someone who is genuinely concerned about the learning process and not as concerned about the credential. Um, one of my, one of my dear friends, uh, he graduated from the, graduated from the Air Force. I'm sorry, graduated. I apologize. He, uh, a veteran of the Air Force, does not have a college education at all, never attended college. He's a master gardener and he advises people who have PhDs in botany. He, um, is an expert in gardening. He's an expert in auto mechanics. He's an expert in culinary arts. So any of those three areas, he could um, lead any group, uh, any organization in those fields because he has a thirst for learning and he'll spend hours trying to discover or explore a topic. That requires a certain level of patience um, and you have to divorce yourself from this um, digestible learning that we've all embraced now with the t- with TikTok, with um, with um, Twitter, with all of these easy ways to grab information. There's no effort in it, and I think that a lot of people just take their learning for granted and don't develop that key critical thinking skill that transforms you. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think. One, there's a huge difference in 
education and information, right? Like understanding um, context and causality and understanding how you can leverage um, what you know about something. That's education, that you, you can do something with information versus being able to access and regurgitate or repeat. Um, that's not education. That is just access to information. And, um, and I, I love this idea that you have to delineate the two and that in order to be effective at education, there has to be another piece. And to your point, that's critical thinking. There has to be some strategy about how you approach information so that you can translate that into education. Um, I'm so curious as to how you, how you start that strategy. So it's one thing to say like critical thinking is the key. So if you're going into an entirely new topic, how are you, um, approaching, I want to use some critical thinking here to really become educated instead of just, um, exposed to information. It's a skill. It, it is, it is a skill. And I, I'm, that's, that's probably that's what I will be wrestling with over the holidays. I, 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 four years away from teaching young adults, I was working with older adults, people with children in my population. So coming back, I was curious to see the difference. And there was a certain, um, there was a certain um, privilege that, these young young adult learners had, which I felt short-circuited the learning process. Everything is just supposed to come to me. And if it's not easily digestible, then I'm going to um, put the textbook down, turn to Google and search for the answer. Which baffled me. Which which baffled me. How do you how do you develop critical thinking skills? Um, and rather than starting with young 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 kids, because that we would we would then be talking about Piaget and so on, um, you just have to encourage people to try new ideas, new experiences. And I believe that that stretches them. And those who are intrigued by that will then continue to search, will continue to learn, will continue to grow. You know, I have a friend, uh, younger, they left school a few years ago. We were talking about education. We are talking about like why sometimes it can be really hard to get like some people to engage with learning, to engage with their own personal growth and development. And uh, this friend of mine said something that's like stuck in my brain. It's, it's like almost 10 years ago now, but they're like, I didn't know the value of my education until I made my first student loan payment. And like, it was all, it was a good chuckle, like a ha ha ha. But that stuck with me because I can't tell you how many times I've taught a class and like, I'm struggling to get people to engage with the material I'm presenting. Like, Hey, like, you know, Come with me, come with me, like, and then like get them to that edge so they can make that next step, that critical thinking moment where they can take A plus B and get to C, you know, without somebody, without looking it up or somebody holding their hand and they just kind of like, and stop. And I think far too often we don't tell people 
the value of the knowledge, the value of the training they're getting until <laughs> they're already through it or until they've bailed out or until they've given up. Like we just go like, Hey, this is really valuable. It's really important. You know, like, look at this thing. It's really important. And we got, they're like, okay, cool. How's it important? Yeah. Cause I said, it's really important. That's why it's important. And I, I feel like not just in public sector, but in corporate and really everywhere, we do a very poor job of explaining the value of the knowledge. And so without that to connect to learners, just go, I'm just sitting here like, okay, cool. You gave me this problem. You asked me these, let me just look up the solution real quick because they don't understand that. I don't care if they can regurgitate facts at me. I want to make sure that like when push comes to shove, they can solve the difficult problems that the internet doesn't have answers for, or at least aren't easy to find on the internet. <laughs> yes. And I'll say this, it's, it's funny timing because I was just having a conversation with my brother this week, kind of about the same thing. Um, my brother is an attorney. He doesn't um, exclusively practice law anymore. He's involved with several different kinds of businesses because he is intrinsically curious. Um, he's very clever. And um, he cannot sit still. Like, he's never been able to sit still. He would get in trouble in class for not sitting still. So, like, that's just who he is. He went to law school. Um, and, of course, law school uses the Socratic method, which is a method of um, exploring ideas and learning concepts through questioning, right? Um, through boundaries, you know, trying to find the boundaries of an idea, trying to find the boundaries of the law, Um and he uses that approach to this day in his daily work. And uh, my father is an attorney. He also um, was an FBI agent. So he <laughs> used that in his life as well. And he kind of imbibed in all of his kids, like, this is how you approach problems. Question, 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 question. Find the boundaries. Figure out what it does and doesn't mean. What you do and don't know. Um, I think functionally as like, a very pragmatic way to approach like teaching it, it's at least a good place to start is this Socratic idea of assume there's much more to know and, you know, in a very meticulous, methodical way, just go about questioning it until you find the boundaries of what can and cannot be answered. I want to come back to your question about how do you develop critical thinking skills? Um, two ideas come to mind. You have to choose to be uncomfortable. You have to choose to be put yourself in an environment that's going to make you uncomfortable. I don't mean in the sense of I feel unsafe or I feel threatened, but I don't know everything there is to know. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. And you also have to be willing to be patient because learning, real learning is a slow process. Um, when I was, I, I, I think to this example all the time, I was in college, you know, and in college, you're in your bubble, you're basically preaching to the choir, you, you, at the age of 18, 19, 20, you know everything there is to know, and no one can tell you different. And I did something that was wiser at the time than I realized. I started, I, I was watching public television. And I started listening to voices that were different from me. So I listened to William F. Buckley, Firing Line, 
And anybody knows Buckley, I mean, you have to, I mean, this guy is on a scale of one to 10 in intellect, he's a 20. And so I was already drowning the minute I turned the television on because he's so, he's so, um, just, just a powerhouse. And his politics were different from mine, but I could not figure out how to argue against him because he is, he is such a well, well, um, crafted thinker. But I kept going back to Buckley every weekend, listening to him and just embracing that discomfort. And I also listened to, um, to the contrary. It's, um, a show that has only women speaking. And so as a male, having a point of view that I would normally not expose myself also stretched me and made forced me to see the world from a different perspective. And making those choices of hearing arguments, hearing critiques that were out of my comfort zone really forced me to think differently. And I imagine that there are other experiences that we can embrace that will force us to slow down and say, okay, this is challenging my worldview. Um, how do I respond to this? And some people might flee, but I think the person who wants to be, wants to grow will remain in that space and continue to stretch themselves. So that would be my advice to someone is to be curious and to place yourself in an environment that's going to stretch you, that's going to make you feel a little uncomfortable and you'll find yourself learning in a healthy way. My version of To the Contrary was car talk. Okay. <laughs> I knew nothing about cars. <laughs> and those guys came from a very different background, but they were fantastic at asking questions and very good at, at making people feel comfortable yeah. <laughs> about what they didn't understand. You know, this ties in a little bit, I think, where we were kind of leading towards like, like the the... I don't want to say generational gap because that makes me feel old and old fashioned. And I don't think it's entirely correct, but the difference between like people beginning their education career and people who are, or their education journey and people who are later in it. I, uh, you talked about, we get in our own bubble and we have to be brave to break out, which I absolutely love and absolutely agree with. And there's little things that happen in my daily life that remind me of just how, organized and like set up our daily routines are i've got a tv in the living room like most people and i've got a computer hooked up to it and set a cable and it's signed into my youtube account and my kid when they eat lunch will sit down watch youtube videos eat lunch hang out i do the same thing different times since they've started doing that my feed, my YouTube feed, my one of my windows into the world, I complained at first. I'm like, it's, it's all jacked up. It's all messed up. Like, what is this? What are, what are these videos about, like, weird retro video games, which they're into? And that's not really my bag of tea. I feel like that's maybe weird and reversed. But all of these other videos started cropping up into my, like, perfectly set little YouTube garden. And I complained about it for about a day. And then I started clicking on stuff like, oh, what's this? What's that? And pretty quickly, like just this one portal, the outside world changed 
like in drastic ways. Like I get videos now that like, I'm just like, what is this about? But then I sit and laugh and like, I'm like, Oh, I'm really glad I would I found that. But I feel like that happens a lot with more than just YouTube, but like so many facets of our lives where we are getting these directed and built and customized experiences to keep us comfortable. And a hundred percent agree with what you said. Good learning happens at the point of discontent and uncomfortability. Like if I can make you discontented, not angry, angry learners are bad. <laughs> Bad's not the right word, but it's not good. If I can make you discontented and a little bit uncomfortable, you'll grab a hold of new concepts and you'll hold on to them. You'll hold on to them for a long time. As teachers, trainers, instructors, another um, step that we can take is to listen to what our students, our trainees are discussing. Um, I don't subscribe to the voice on high approach to teaching. Um, I, when I'm teaching, I try to walk into the class. So I don't, I don't always stand at the front of the classroom. I walk into the classroom. I'll walk among the students and basically explain to them that we're all learners today and we're all teachers today to encourage them to be active contributors because they have experiences that I would never think about. And, and I want that as part of the learning environment. I want as dynamic a learning environment as possible. I will grow. Um, their experiences will be validated. And I'm hoping that if their knowledge is validated, then they'll see that what I'm offering has value as well so that we're all learning, we're all teaching, we're all growing. I just wrote something in a training course today um, where, I, where I encouraged, I'm trying to get um, Learnish to um, connect a customer to a profile types. Um, pretty basic, standard exercise. But what I encouraged them to do was I said, don't try to eliminate who they're not because most people are several things. Try to connect them to something they're most. Mm-hmm. Um, and I added that because like, I feel like it's a very human and natural thing to do, but it's so limiting because it seems really easy to say, well, I know it's not that, and I know it's not that, but it really changes how you approach a problem instead of saying, let me just try and figure out what it might be. Um, recognize that you're trying to eliminate things, but try to listen to the other voice over it. Well, what do you do when you when you are, are for example, if you if you lead or if you're training, and the tendency is, and I find this in my classroom, everyone just looks to you to lead. Everyone looks to you to just tell them what they need to know. They listen. They jot it down, and and engagement is minimal. How do you? How do you change the, the the setting? How do you make it more dynamic? How do you get folks to become engaged? I know Scott and Dan have a lot of ideas. <laughs> I, I was going to start with that you have to have a, the mindset of I'm a facilitator. So when I started training, 
I was the sage on the stage, man, right? I'm the guy, <laughs> right? You want to listen to me because I'm really smart. And one of the things that I think um, great facilitators understand is that um, I'm just the person creating the environment where an experience can happen and that my, I invite my learners to come into that experience and learn. Right. So it's, it's all about, I'm directing traffic, right? It's not about what I can teach you. It is about what you can learn from the experience. And I think great experience designers, which is what I like to call the people in our field today do is they really focus in on what are my objectives that I want to get done? What's going to be new, better, and different when we're all done. And then what are the things that my my learners need to do together or by themselves to get to there versus me telling them this. That's creative problem solving. And the greatest thing about that is I can't look that stuff up in Google. I won't get any of that. Like the arts are still in a fantastic thing because it can't be defined by the norms of where we traditionally get our information or the our informational overload it, it it is that space and so anyway that's my humble opinion like how do we create and develop an experience um that that our learners go to um you in our pre-talk talked a little bit about microwave learning mm -hmm. and versus um something that needs to be savored but would you mind kind of taking that idea and kind of piggybacking off on that? Cause I think it's similar. Sure. Um, so I, 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 I was I've, I've been grading for the past, um, um, two weeks. So catching up on final exams, um, any missed assignments. And I've given all of my students an opportunity to turn in all of their work. Um, one of my students said, I thought you, um, I thought you weren't taking any late assignments anymore. And I said, well, I'd rather take a late assignment than to give a student a failing grade. So I would just rather you get your work in. And as I was grading, and it's, it's, and, and, and what, I shake my head to admit this, but I, I, this was an open book. These are open book exams. I ask questions that are open-ended and the student has to open up their textbook and look for the answer. But it's open book. There's no rush. Take your time. And I was surprised to see that a lot of their answers were not from the textbook. It was basically it was Google, right? They just type in the question. Uh, there's a Google answer and they copy and paste whatever are the first three sentences that they and, and, and the answer doesn't even have to make sense to them. It just it's just. It popped up. It popped up for this question. I'm going to copy and paste it. That's good enough. Here you go. And I thought, so there's no reading involved. There's, they, they didn't even read the entire paragraph to understand if they were answering the question. There just seemed to be this idea. There's something in front of me. I'm going to just get the information as quickly as possible. Abby said, just get the information as quickly as possible. I'm going to plug it in and move on to the next thing, just like in a microwave. Pop something in, press it for two minutes. Um, it's warmed. You just gobble it down onto the next thing. 
versus reading the question, thinking about what I'm asking, taking the time to read the textbook and understand what a good answer would sound like, and then writing it down. And that process is what I would consider kind of simmering, right? You're taking the time, you're thinking, you're reading, you're pondering. And then when you write down your answer, that's, that's the savoring part where you actually are now a part of the learning process. Um, one of my professors um, in grad school, um, 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 Libby Schwaber was her name, um, brilliant, brilliant woman. She w- would always tell me, think with your fingers. So, you know, think with your fingers. And so I try to encourage my students to think with their fingers, but that takes time. Writing is painful. Writing takes time. Writing is difficult. And if you're not willing to take the time to engage in that type of thinking, then you're going to just embrace the Google copy and paste approach to quote unquote learning. So that, that's what I that's what I'm thinking about when I when I describe this microwave process. I wonder what what you would get as a response if you asked your question if you asked your students a question that didn't have a real answer. Um, where stairs. they had to struggle. <clears throat> Blank stare. I've had that. I've asked asked the question in class and there was no answer. It wasn't in a textbook. Mm -hmm. It was just basically, it was basically, you know, I was walking from my home onto the campus. I was listening to NPR. A speaker said something that I thought was interesting. And so I just asked the question in class. I had no answer to it. I was just curious. What do you think about this? And it's just like blank stairs like, mm-hmm. like what are you trying to pull <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> when I first got my start uh, I was a trainer for technical support for printers and laptops so it's a it's a very different audience and uh, you know you would ask questions and I would always get a lot of a lot of um, participation but it wasn't always healthy you get a lot of um i'm trying to the best way to put this aggressive nerds kind of in that field like let me show you how smart i am let me show everybody how smart i am and you know you talk about getting blank stares i used to get like i'd be like hey let me ask a quick question and if it wasn't like an easy black and white question i would get a lot of answers and then a lot of people arguing over which answer was the correct answer and why everybody who didn't agree with their answer was dumb. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, like there are, there are other versions of that, but man, uh, I can't as a, as a facilitator just to get nothing back. Oh, I'd melt. I I'd die inside just like crickets. Like, Oh no. So that's tough. And it's uncomfortable for you, but it's a, it's a demonstration of the problem, right? And mm-hmm. um, and that it's as uncomfortable as for you. It's a huge problem for the learners. And what you want them to know is this is your problem. This is going to be a pro- I'm trying to help you because when this happens in real life, oh my gosh, how how 
how sad I'll be for you because we really do care about our learners. Like that's why we're there. We're trying to make sure that that situation isn't, doesn't happen. That is probably one of the, the most important changes that I'm slowly undergoing. Um, When I noticed that a sizable number of my students chose to use Google to search for answers rather than opening a textbook, I said to myself, there's something I did wrong because I somehow did not impart upon them the value of exploring this material in front of them. And while I want to shake my head, and I, and I, sh- I shook my head a lot for the past several weeks, um, noticing that a student would rather write down not applicable or IDK, well, NA or IDK, they don't even write out not applicable, I don't know, for an answer that's in the textbook. Um, it's amusing, but I'm, I'm at a place now where I'm holding myself accountable and saying, okay, what did I do wrong to where the student did not understand the importance of searching for that answer, um, exploring what do I have to do differently to inculcate that desire in the students. So that's going to be a change for me, putting more responsibility to inspire students rather than just saying, well, um, as you were saying, um, Scott, this, um, this um, sage on the, on the stage approach, where you know, I know I'm smart and obviously they're dumb, so I'll just keep on trucking, keep on moving throughout the material. <laughs> but I'm going to take a different approach. You know, at the heart of it, you're really kind of speaking to humility, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that, you know, the importance of humility in learning. How do we, how do we foster that? I want to create an environment where no one feels um, no one feels that they can't contribute, and I want to create an environment where, myself included, we are saying to those who maybe not as formally educated that they bring value and mean it. It's important that we mean it. Um, I was going back to that building um, building construction class. We were given a math problem in the um, the carpentry portion of the class, and it was a guy named Corey. Didn't have a high school diploma, but he was able to um, figure out the math problem without even thinking about it. And I just observed and I noticed that because he was a carpenter as his survival, understanding numbers and how to do carpentry quickly required that he understand math because time is money in the trades. And if you're spending time trying to figure out how to come up with the right formulas for a cut or to build something, you're losing money. And so the incentive to learn math in an efficient way um, had Corey figuring out math problems that I, with my graduate degree, could 
could not figure out unless I took off my socks and my shoes and had all, all 10 fingers available. But I, I, when I saw that, it just dawned on me. And I remember that thinking how people bring different bodies of knowledge to the learning process. And it was very humbling for me in a very healthy way to gain this respect for someone who on paper paled in comparison to my education, my formal education, but I genuinely respected his, his knowledge, his, his, his skill set. And that changed how I saw um, what learning meant, what knowledge meant, and how even the most um, inarticulate person who we might struggle to understand can have a body of knowledge and understanding that can enhance us. So I've been open to listening with a with a genuine heart whenever I meet someone and they're trying to share information with me, I really try to be as humble and as open to what they may be trying to pass on to me. I mean, humility is key to like so, so many things. Uh, but no, being able to be in a place where you can recognize just gap between what you know and what there is to know. When I first got started in instructional design, I was a monster. I was a jerk. Uh, just because <laughs> like I, I, I dove in and I was like, I'm gonna learn all the technical stuff about adult learning theory I can. And man, I remember looking at learners when they tell me that they didn't get the course or it sucked and just be like, no, uh, you're just not looking at it right. Because and I checked all these boxes. I did all these things technically correct. So you're the problem. Uh, I'm so sorry to anybody who had to take any of my early courses. And again, that's that was like ego and fear from like, oh, God, I'm a fake and somebody will figure it out. So I have to learn all of the technical stuff because I'm good at learning technical stuff. And man, once I realized that I'm just a big old dummy, <laughs> like it was so much easier and so much more fulfilling to like dive in and learn stuff and connect with other people who knew things I didn't. I always ask my students when, um, and it's not, not not just at the end of the semester, but even if I see them walking on campus, what am I doing wrong in the class? I'm not looking for praise. I'm not saying, okay, so tell me what you liked about the class, you know, so that I can so that I can have my ego stroke. I am really asking so that students can tell me what's not working for them, so that I can improve. Yeah, I never got any better by making good material. I always got better <laughs> by making bad material. <laughs> that was, and and working with a team that was willing to talk to me about where the problems were and collaborate on how to make them better. So there's so much truth to that. Um, and that awareness of meeting people where they are, making them feel safe, just so important. We probably could. Hey, we're getting to that point in time in the 
in the show where we're going to begin to wrap things up. But Azel, we really appreciate you coming on and, and, and your wisdom and, and your thoughts. Very thought-provoking for, for all of us. But I, I wanted to give you an opportunity. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about tonight that you hadn't had the time to yet and you wanted to leave with our audience today? I, this is a question I really have. Uh, I wonder how, as experienced instructional designers, do you see a difference, and maybe there doesn't exist a difference, uh, between the quality of the learner, the trainee, and the quality of their foundational education? So, you know, someone who comes into training who's, who had a really rough time in secondary education, maybe they don't have the skills or the confidence versus someone who comes into the training who well-educated, well-prepared, or maybe it makes no difference. I, I would say I have been pleasantly surprised. Um, I feel like over the years that I've been doing this, People are more willing to give critical feedback, um, even if they feel like they're in a position where like they don't usually have much say. I, I've been surprised that when we send out surveys and say, what could we do better? People are like, well, I didn't like this part of the training. Um, that people feel like they're owed quality training from us. And I'm, I'm glad for that. I feel like a lot of times the oh, our, our learners suck. Oh, this new crop is coming from people who are so detached and removed from the learners that they don't know. Uh, to your point, Abby, yeah, like getting feedback way easier than when I first started. I can't tell you how many times I've got to. So how's everything going? Fine. Did you like the training? Yeah. OK, is there anything you change? No. And just be like, cool, cool, super helpful. Thanks for your time. And now, like, I can be like, hey, how'd the training go? Um, it was boring. So I just kind of let it run in the background while I did other things. I'm like, oh, God. I also feel like on the other side of that, they're way more forgiving. We talked about content with Alex a few weeks ago. And, you know, Scott, you brought up like, hey, like production value is pretty important. And he was like, no, nah, not really, man. Whereas like in the past, you know, if I told an executive like, hey, we'll be fine. We're just going to use a cell phone cam and just just wing it. It'd be a no, you're not. And our learners would think the same way too. They go, oh, this is cheap. This sucks. But now there's like as long as the content is meaningful, impactful and good, they're less worried about how it gets delivered. For me, if I go back to the root of your question of I've got people with different experiences that come into that environment, right? So if I'm speaking to specifically to the educators that are privileged enough to steward that experience for people, what a what a great privilege that that you get. Like I'm actually envious of you. That that is a wonderful gift, and I mean that. But. It, in my humble opinion, my experience is that great facilitators recognize that there is value from everyone in the room, whether they're really highly educated or whether they had a rough time in, in elementary school or whatever. And the key is to create an environment where they all come together 
and creatively problem solve. And all of them has their unique gift, so to speak, that they could add to the experience and enrich everybody else, right? So those people that come in with tremendous amount of knowledge, a tremendous amount of experience, I'm pulling them in as kind of an expert to kind of help out. That is rich and rewarding for them, right? This um, making sure that that person that's in the corner who's, please don't call on me, please don't call on me. Yeah, I'm going to call on you and, and probably more than once, right? And create a safe environment where it's okay to make mistakes so you feel like you're valued and you can contribute. And that's where the magic happens, right? So the magic happens when we take this diverse group of individuals, bring them together and have a shared experience that causes everybody to grow. And that's not easy to do. But man, and you know this, right? Like, you know, when you're hitting on all cylinders and those people are, are, are with you and they get to go through that, it's a great day. Like, that, those are the best days. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to preach, but you've just kind of triggered me again um, about, you know, you go home and you just feel like you're on top of the world. Like that, would be, that would be my challenge to anybody listening to Zell and, and the rest of us today. Like, you know, what can you do to create that environment where everybody brings something in and we're, we all grow from that? So, at any rate, that, that's my answer. I, I, if you don't like it, I can come up with a new one. But I, I think that's where we're going to go ahead and land. And I want to thank you. For coming on the show. It's been awesome. It's been great. Um, help us understand some things that you're working on and how our audience can connect with you. Okay, oh, yeah. so you can you can you can reach me on LinkedIn, Ezel Lundy, E-Z-E-L-L-L-U-N-D-Y. I think I'm the only person with that name, so that shouldn't be too hard. Um, I'm working on two two books. Um, um, one one I'm looking at and it's 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 the work that I did while I was in DC on issues of child support and child custody but the learning side of it is I noticed that a lot of non-custodial parents make the same mistakes over and over again so I'm trying to I'm I'm working on creating training modules to show them how to navigate um the court system so that'll be um that'll be the instructional design piece and the other, we were talking about education. Um, I am a little critical of the abdication of education by folks other than the teachers. Teachers get beat up a lot, and it's unfair. And so I'm writing about the student, the parent, and the administrators. Those are um, three parties in the learning process who aren't held accountable in the way that they should be held. And so that'll that's the the other project I'm working on. And I'll be presenting my work um, as early as March at a conference in Louisiana. So um, I'm excited. I'm excited. We're excited for you. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Folks, make sure you hit up and follow Zell. Um, I can't wait for your uh, books to come out. And keep uh, you keep doing what you're doing, encouraging people to think critically and, and have those creative problem solving skills because man we need them we totally need them and i think you're doing wonderful stuff you're doing uh, doing great work daniel son 
Yes, Scott. Can you do us a favor and let our audience know how they can better connect with us? Absolutely. All right, party people, if you haven't already, email us at nerds at thelearningnerds.com. Join in the conversation. Give us examples of how maybe you have seen how humility has helped in your learning process or have helped others learn. If you're on Facebook, you can find us at Learning Nerds. For all of our Instagram peeps, Fab Learning Nerds. And lastly, for more information about us, what we do, and updates, www.thelearningnerds.com. Scott. Thanks, Dan. Hey, everybody, do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button. Share this episode with your friends. If you love what Fizzell's talking about, what we're talking about, leave us a review. We'd love to hear how we're doing. And it helps get our message out to more people, more folks like yourselves that want to make a difference. With that, I'm Scott. I'm Dan. I'm Abby. And I'm Ezell. And we're your fabulous learning nerds, and we are out. Thanks for listening to the Fabulous Learning Nerds. You know, there are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment of offerings. If you're, if you're thinking of giving it a try, if you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.